Okay, good evening and welcome to our Bible study. We are continuing in the series we've been doing called Reasons to Believe. We are now in part six, a very important part of this study where we're looking at the subject of fulfilled prophecy. And um, I hate to keep mentioning this, but new people keep joining. So if you want to listen to previously recorded portions of this Bible study or access any of the written notes, you can do so at our church website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and just look uh, at the prompts there for messages, etc., uh, if you do want to listen online, um, this is broadcast through MixLR, M-I-X-L-R dot com, and our broadcaster name is New Life Ministries, all one word. And if you are following along in the notes tonight, we are in part six, and we're going to be starting off on page 17. Just to give a little bit of a recap from last time, we've been looking at the subject of messianic prophecy. The whole subject of prophecy is very vast, and even the, the subject of messianic prophecy, which are Old Testament predictions concerning the Messiah, concerning Christ, and we're looking at a number of those predictions to see how Jesus fulfilled each one of those prophecies. There are actually more than 300 specific predictions throughout the Old Testament that would need to be fulfilled by whoever the Messiah was. And it can't just be 75% or 80% or even 99%. They have to be all fulfilled. It's either all or nothing. And so the chances of somebody accidentally fulfilling most of these prophecies is next to nil. And when we finish this, we're actually going to look at uh, the mathematical probability that someone could have fulfilled even a handful of these prophecies, let alone all 300 of them. And we mentioned when we started this section on Messianic prophecy that there are over 90 of these Messianic prophecies specifically quoted by New Testament writers. So in the New Testament, 90 different prophecies are mentioned in relation to Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of them. And we are actually going to be looking at about 60 of those 90 prophecies, obviously very briefly, and I would strongly recommend that you get the notes for all of these studies, but especially for this one, because there are so many scriptures, we can't possibly read all of them uh, when we're together uh, in these Bible studies. But just to recap last time, we looked at a number of prophecies that predicted what the Messiah would be like, 
In other words, what's his office? What's his name? What's his function? What would his nature be? And I'll just run through quickly a list of some of the things we've already looked at. The predictions were that he would be eternal, even though he was born of a woman, coming through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Judah, the line of Jesse, the family of David. He would actually be from everlasting. And a number of the prophecies that we looked at showed us that although he was entering into time and the human race, he's actually the eternal God. So, from everlasting to everlasting. And we saw that Messiah would be called Lord, Emmanuel, Prophet, Priest, Judge, King, and he would be known as the Anointed One. And actually the word Christ is another synonym for anointed one. So when we say Jesus the Christ, or Jesus Christ, we're affirming that he is Messiah, the anointed one. And I want to continue right along tonight with a new section. And again, if you're following in the written notes, we're on page 17 of part 6, Fulfilled Prophecy. Another interesting prophecy is that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. And in Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 19, I'm going to read down to verse 23. Matthew, you'll remember, of all the gospel writers, he seemed to uh, pay the most attention to this subject of fulfilled prophecy. And a number of times... He mentions different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry in light of how it was a fulfillment of prophecy. And this is one such case, but this one's a little bit mysterious, and more about that after we read it. Matthew 2, beginning with verse 19 down to verse 23. After Herod died an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, and then Matthew is quoting, he will be called a Nazarene. End quote. This is a very interesting portion of scripture, and Each aspect of Jesus' birth and his life, it's all scripted ahead of time. How he would be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, and even the details behind that we saw were quite convoluted and how the Lord orchestrated a number of events to see that 
Scripture was fulfilled in him being born in Bethlehem. Then there was prophecy concerning God calling his son out of Egypt. And here again, how because of Herod and his threats, Joseph and Mary took the child Jesus down into Egypt, and now they're being called out of Egypt back to Judea, but then there's another little twist and turn where they end up in the town of Nazareth. And Matthew tells us here in verse 23, this was no accident, it wasn't a coincidence, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Well, you can look through all the commentaries and all your Bible notes, and you're not going to find any reference there because there isn't any. Um, Either the reference has been lost, or this was just generally known among the prophets that Messiah was going to be known as a Nazarene, that he would come from Nazareth. All of the other places in the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew says such and such happened to fulfill what was said by the prophets, we know where it comes from, whether Zechariah or Micah or Isaiah. But this is an obscure quote. We don't know exactly where he's getting the quotation, but we do know that it was widely known in Matthew's day that Messiah would be called a Nazarene. And of course, if you know the New Testament, you know that Jesus is frequently referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. I won't even take the time to give you Bible verses for that, but numerous places in the New Testament, his place of residence, Nazareth, is attached to his name, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. So, this is obviously a fulfillment of prophecy. We just don't have um, the direct reference for the Old Testament, although Matthew is giving a direct quote. He will be called a Nazarene. Okay? Moving on to another specific prophecy concerning Messiah that Jesus fulfilled is found in Psalm 69. You'll remember I mentioned a handful of psalms that are widely uh, known and acknowledged to be messianic psalms. Psalm 22, for instance, is a messianic psalm. Psalm 69 is another messianic psalm. A number of predictions are found in Psalm 69 concerning the Christ, the Messiah, And this is one specific prediction found there. Psalm 69, verse 9. And it says, For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Zeal for your house consumes me. Now, as in many cases... This was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. So the likelihood of this just being a coincidence 
is very slim. And then when we come to the New Testament and the life and ministry of Jesus, amazingly, we read the following in John's Gospel, John chapter 2, from verse 15 to 17. This is when Jesus went into the temple with a whip and drove out all the money changers. It says, So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And then note carefully verse 17. His disciples remembered that it is written, and then they're quoting from Psalm 69 verse 9 where we just read, quote, zeal for your house will consume me. How amazing that every detail of Jesus' life was done to fulfill the Word of God, done to fulfill specific prophetic predictions that in most cases were made hundreds of years ahead of time. So this was not a coincidence, him going into the temple, him passionately, jealously driving out the money changers, declaring that his father's house was a house of prayer, his disciples realized that before their very eyes, Scripture was being fulfilled, just one of, as I mentioned, almost 300 specific predictions, all relating to the Messiah. Zeal for God's house would consume him. Now we want to move on to a different section of Messianic prophecies. These are specific prophecies concerning Christ's ministry. We've talked about his birth, his family lineage, his nature, prophet, priest, king. Now we want to look more specifically at just what would his ministry be. What does the Old Testament tell us about the ministry of Jesus? And as you know, for the first 30 years of his life, Jesus did no ministry. It was only after his baptism in the River Jordan and his receiving the fullness of the Holy Spirit and spending 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying that he then began his ministry. And here again we find each aspect, each detail of his ministry was predicted long ahead of time by the Old Testament prophets. One very important aspect of his ministry is that there would be a precursor. His ministry would be preceded by a messenger. And Isaiah and Malachi both speak about this, but we'll read Isaiah's prophecy, which is the one 
quoted in the New Testament and probably the one best known. And of course, I think we all realize this was fulfilled by John the Baptist, a precursor, a messenger who would come before Messiah announcing his arrival and preparing the way for his ministry. Isaiah chapter 40 from verse 3 to 5. Isaiah 40 from 3 to 5. A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And coming over to the New Testament, you read about this, of course, in all of the Gospels, but let's turn to Luke chapter 3 and read from verse 3 to 6. And in the context, it's referring to John. We normally refer to him as John the Baptist. Um, verse 3 reads, He, that's John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and this is just what we read, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Now, the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all refer to this passage in Isaiah 40, and connect it both with John the Baptist and with Jesus, is telling us two very important things. John is the literal fulfillment of this messenger predicted hundreds of years earlier by Isaiah. Jesus is indeed the Messiah that this messenger was preparing the way for. So, in both cases, in the case of John the Baptist and in the case of Jesus, what the Gospel writers are saying is, this prophecy has now been fulfilled. The Messenger has come, and the Messiah has come. And looking in John's Gospel, it's a little bit different here. John chapter 1, from verse 19 to 23. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Again, this is John the Baptist. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. In other words, I am not the Messiah, the, the Anointed One, the Promised One. They asked him, 
Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23 is very critical here. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. So here, according to John, John the Apostle, John the Baptist literally said, I am fulfilling Isaiah chapter 40. I am that messenger who has come to announce the Christ, the coming Messiah. And obviously, as you follow through with the story, uh, the Messiah that he recognized was none other than Jesus. When he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you can read more about this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 and onwards, but we, we won't bother going there. So, the first step in Christ's ministry was there needed to be this messenger, this precursor who would announce his coming. Now we have the documentation from the Gospel writers that John the Baptist is indeed that messenger, and he announced that Jesus is the Messiah. The next thing we learn that was prophesied about Messiah's ministry is that it would begin in Galilee. Interesting how each step of the way there are these specific pinpoint predictions. Born in Bethlehem, called a Nazarene, but the, his ministry must begin in Galilee. Here again we turn to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 1 to 2. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he, that's God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Fast forward about 700 years. Jesus has now been baptized in the river Jordan, filled with the Holy Spirit. He spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying. He's now come up out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And we read the following in Matthew 4, beginning with verse 12, and I'll read down to verse 17. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, 
he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Sound familiar? Verse 14. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, and then it's quoting just what we read from Isaiah 9. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Of all the places Jesus could have started his ministry, he was very carefully guided by the Holy Spirit to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, his, the first words of preaching out of his mouth come in the very place that Isaiah pinpointed, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles. So, it was predicted that his ministry would begin in Galilee. Jesus' ministry began in Galilee. The next point we learn about Messiah's ministry is it would be characterized by many different kinds of miracles and healings. Miracles and healings would be a clear sign of the Messiah. And we read, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 35, verses, verses 5 and 6. And the Jews all understood these to be messianic prophecies. They knew that the coming Messiah would fulfill all of these promises. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Again, clearly understood to be a messianic prophecy, this whole chapter of Isaiah 53. All of the Jews understood this was messianic in nature. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Sorry, I lost my place here. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. When Matthew writes in his gospel about the many, many miracles and healings that he witnessed being done through Jesus Christ, this is what he wrote in Matthew 8, 
verses 16 and 17. And we could cite numerous other passages about all the healings, all the miracles that Jesus was performing. And you may remember in an earlier study, we saw in Matthew 11, when John the Baptist had been locked up in prison, he sent word to Jesus through some of his disciples, uh, and he was having a moment of doubt where he wasn't sure if Jesus really was the Messiah or not. So he sent his disciples to question Jesus, Are you the one? And you may remember, Jesus' answer was, The eyes of the blind are opened, the deaf ears are unstopped, the lame are walking, and the good news is preached to the poor. All of these were signs of him being the Messiah. Things we just read here in Isaiah 35. Well, in Matthew 8, as Matthew witnessed hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands, of miraculous healings, people being delivered from demonic uh, oppression, Here's what he wrote in Matthew 8:16. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, that's to Jesus, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. And notice verse 17, quite characteristic of Matthew's gospel. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, and he's quoting where we just read from Isaiah 53. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. In other words, Matthew is drawing a line between Matthew um, between Isaiah 53 and Jesus of Nazareth and saying this is the one. He is fulfilling Isaiah 53 by healing all of the sick. Later on, Peter in his epistle refers to this same portion of scripture in Isaiah 53 and connects it also with Jesus in 1 Peter 2 verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds, or your Bible may read stripes, by his wounds you have been healed. And as I mentioned, in Matthew 11, when John sent word to Jesus to find out whether or not Jesus really was the promised one, the Messiah, Here's what we read in Matthew 11, starting with verse 4. This is Jesus' answer to be sent back to John. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, that's a messianic sign. The lame walk, that we just read in Isaiah 35. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. 
each one of those specific signs of the Messiah. We come to another important aspect of Jesus' ministry that is also mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, and he cites this from the prophet Isaiah. It's from Isaiah chapter 42. And this is actually, I believe, the longest uh, portion of Old Testament prophecy that is quoted by a gospel writer as being fulfilled by Jesus. Isaiah 42, from verse 1 to 4, that he would be God's chosen servant, bringing forth justice. All right, here we go. Isaiah 42, from 1 to 4. Here is my servant. This is God speaking, of course. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout, or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. And then turning to the New Testament, we come to Matthew chapter 12, and from verse 15 to 21. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. Notice verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes the passage we just read from Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. You can notice a few differences in the wording, but essentially he's quoting the entire four verses that we read from Isaiah chapter 42. Again, what's Matthew saying? Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecy that Isaiah gave to us in chapter 42. Okay, on to a fifth aspect that was prophesied concerning Jesus' ministry, and this was a very important part of his ministry, and it was indeed predicted in the Old Testament. It's found in Psalm 78, and that is that the Messiah would use 
a peculiar method of teaching. He would teach in parables. I think if you've studied the Gospels at all, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you'll realize how important a part of Christ's teaching ministry this was. He was often teaching in many parables. Here's the prophecy in Psalm 78, verse 2. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. Now, follow carefully when we come to the New Testament here, and we come to our friend Matthew again, because remember, he's the seems to be the most zealous of all the gospel writers about proving this point that Jesus fulfilled every messianic prophecy. Even this obscure quote from Psalm 78 about teaching in parables. Matthew 13, beginning with verse 10, and we'll read down to verse 15, and then jump down to verses 34 and 35. Matthew 13, starting at verse 10. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. And then he quotes from Isaiah. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. And he again is quoting you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, that's the long answer to the question, why do you speak to the people in parables? If you jump down to verse 34, we get the short answer. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. And then Matthew is quoting where we started this section from Psalm 78.2. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So, why did Jesus teach so much using parables? Well, it was both to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah and to fulfill this specific prediction from Psalm 78, I will open my mouth in parables. As we come toward the end of Jesus' 
three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry, we pick up on some other details, uh, specific details that were cited hundreds of years beforehand by various prophets. One of them you're probably quite familiar with. This would be point number six here. That Jesus would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Doesn't sound like a big deal. But here again, if you start adding up 300 different predictions, what family line he would come from, where he would be born, born of a virgin, son of David, family line of Jesse, uh, called a Nazarene, etc., 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 it starts to become highly improbable that someone could accidentally fulfill all of these different predictions. And add to that this prediction that he would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This, of course, was prophesied by Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9. Hundreds of years before Christ, here's what the prophet wrote. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Jews all generally recognized this to be a messianic prophecy. This was their future king who would come riding into Jerusalem, bringing salvation, a meek and gentle Messiah. We come to the New Testament again, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. As we're nearing the end of Jesus' time here on earth, we read here in verse 1, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Note that. The prophecy was there would be a donkey and a colt. So, he's now instructing his disciples, Go to such and such a place, you'll find a donkey with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now in those days, you just didn't go walking into a barn and take somebody's donkey and colt. But Jesus said not to worry, this has all been pre-planned by the Father. If they even ask you what you're doing, tell them the Lord has need of them. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And then Matthew quotes what we just read. Say to the daughter of Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. So, more specifically, he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey and its colt. He's riding on them. They had both the donkey and its colt together. In fulfillment of Zechariah's prediction made hundreds of years earlier. Um, Time permitting, we're going to look at two more points here. Point number seven. This is all under this heading of the Messiah's ministry. What would his ministry be like? Where would it begin? What would he do? What kind of a minister would he be? How would he teach? How would he finish his ministry? Point number seven, it was predicted in the Old Testament that he would actually be a stone of stumbling to the Jewish leaders. And indeed he was. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Psalm 118, verses 23, I'm sorry, 22 to 23. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And we'll see as we follow this along, the stone is Jesus. The builders are the priests, the Pharisees, the Jewish elite of his day. They were the supposed builders of the kingdom, but rather than recognizing him for who he was and accepting him and saying, praise God, hallelujah, the stone has come, they unanimously rejected him, and in so doing, he became the capstone of the building. Isaiah also speaks about this in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Isaiah 8, 14 and 15. And he will be a sanctuary, but for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. And also, later on in Isaiah, we read more about this stone, the rejected stone. Isaiah 28, verse 16. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. And we're actually going to look at three New Testament citations 
that refer back to these prophecies of Christ being this stone of stumbling, this stone that the builders, the very builders, rejected, thus causing him to become the chief cornerstone. The first one is found, again, in Matthew. Matthew chapter 21, from verse 42 to 44, and here we'll find Jesus himself quoting this Old Testament prophecy and applying it to himself and to the rejection by the Jewish leaders. Matthew 21, starting at verse 42. Jesus said to them, and in context he's speaking to the Pharisees and the Jewish elite, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? That's where we began this section, Psalm 118. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What a thing. Jesus is talking to these Pharisees and scribes and experts in the law, and he he says, haven't you read in your Bible this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 43, Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and he on whom it falls will be crushed. Well, what's Jesus saying? Indirectly, he's telling the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders You are the builders, I am the stone. You are rejecting me, I am the chief capstone, the cornerstone, and you do this to your own harm. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and he on whom it falls will be crushed. The apostles who write later on in the New Testament, uh, they all refer to this passage and connect it with Jesus specifically. Note, for instance, in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Acts 4, verses 10 and 11. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. This, of course, is Peter preaching to the crowd after this miraculous healing. And he's referring specifically to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead, and it's in his name that this man has been healed. Verse 11, he, that's Jesus of Nazareth, 
He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. So now we have both Jesus and Peter referring to Psalm 118 and saying Jesus is that stone. The Jewish leaders fulfilled the other part of the prophecy. They are the builders that rejected the chosen stone. This is all tied together very nicely by Peter later on in his epistle. 1 Peter chapter 2, from verse 4 to 8. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 8. As you come to him, that's to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, and now we have a quotation, Peter is quoting from Isaiah 28, where we read earlier, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. End quote. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, and then again he's quoting, this time from Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. End quote. And, he quotes again, from Isaiah 8, quote, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, end quote. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So, both Jesus and Peter, and indirectly Matthew, who's recording all this in the Gospel of Matthew, and Peter later, as he's preaching and writing, confirm the fact that Jesus fulfilled all of these messianic prophecies concerning the fact that he would be the rejected, the chosen, precious stone, rejected by the builders, but accepted by God as the very cornerstone of the the temple of God. Okay, lastly, and here's where we'll conclude this section, point number eight, another messianic prophecy concerning his ministry was that not only would Messiah bring salvation for the Jews, but he would be a light for the Gentiles. He would be a light for the Gentiles. And we look in Isaiah again, chapter 49, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, 
for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So God, speaking to his chosen one, his Messiah, he says, it's too small a thing for you simply to save and restore the tribes of Israel. I'm also going to make you a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So Messiah would be the savior of both Jew and Gentile. Anyone who did not fulfill both aspects of that ministry could not possibly be the true Messiah. Well, coming to the New Testament, this very passage is referred to and is actually quoted in one of the two passages we're going to read. Luke chapter 2, verses 30 to 32. And in the context, you'll remember when Jesus was eight days old, Joseph and Mary took him into the temple to be circumcised according to the law, and Simeon took the baby Jesus into his arms, and here is what he declared. And this is a direct quote of Simeon's, Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon, of course, knew the Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah, that he needed to be both Savior for Israel and a light for the Gentiles. And so, by the Holy Spirit, he recognizes that this eight-day-old baby is indeed the Messiah. He is the promised one, the salvation of God that has now come into the world, prepared to be a light for revelation to Gentiles and glory for the people of Israel. Later on in Acts 13, verse 47, when the gospel began to go to the Gentiles, and many Gentiles were being saved, they realized that this was direct fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 49. And in Acts 13, verse 47, we don't have time to look at all the context, but you can look it up. Um, the gospel is now going out to Gentile towns and cities, and many, many non-Jewish Gentiles are being saved, healed, baptized with the Holy Spirit, from Acts 10 onwards, actually. 
And here's what we read. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. And then there's a direct quote from Isaiah 49. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And this is where we're going to stop for tonight. We're still not done with Messianic prophecy, not by a long shot. And next time, we're going to try in one session to look at 27 different prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in one 24-hour period. That's, that's incredible. Just absolutely amazing. I mean, it may, it may be a little overwhelming to you the, the volume of Scripture that we're looking at, but I'm doing that deliberately. I want you to see the overwhelming testimony that we have here that we are without excuse. We cannot possibly say, well, I'm not sure, I don't have enough proof yet that Jesus is the Messiah. He was presented to us by many infallible proofs, the Bible says, not the least of which is 300 different predictions, often being made hundreds of years ahead of time, concerning every detail of his birth, his life, his ministry, and next time we'll see his death and his resurrection. 27 different prophecies, specific details, all had to be fulfilled on that final day of his life here on earth before he gave up his spirit on the cross of Calvary. And he fulfilled every single one of them in one 24-hour period. What are the chances that all of this just happened by coincidence? This is, as we've seen in this whole section on fulfilled prophecy, this is why God uses prophecy. It is to strengthen our faith, it is to convince us beyond any shadow of a doubt that God is who he, said he says he is, he's done what he promised he would do, and with absolute confidence we can take him at his word. Jesus fulfilled every single messianic prophecy, not a single one went unfulfilled or unnoticed. And every detail that he did, every step he took, every aspect of his life and ministry was done to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh God, how powerful your word is. Heaven and earth will pass away before one jot or tittle can be altered or changed in your holy scriptures. The scripture must be fulfilled. The scripture cannot be broken. And God, you have used fulfilled prophecies to show us without any question, without any doubt, that you are the one 
and the only true living God. And Lord, from Genesis 3 onwards, you began predicting this Messiah, this chosen one, this healer, savior, ruler, and king who would be anointed from on high to heal the sick, to bring deliverance, to open blind eyes, to raise the dead, to bring hope to the poor and the hopeless. And Lord, Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled every one of those prophecies. We thank you and we praise you tonight, O God, that you have opened our eyes and you have brought us into this glorious revelation of who Jesus Christ is. He is indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And of this we can be sure. God, I pray for each one listening tonight, those that may be tuning in on the internet or even listening to these recordings in the future. Strengthen their faith, O God. Let them know without any doubt that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And your word from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 can all be trusted. The scriptures are inspired. The scriptures are true. Every word of God is pure. And we can trust you at your word. Father, I thank you for each and every one joining us tonight. Bless them and make them a blessing. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.